Welcome to another episode of Mama Earth Talk. I'm your host, Maris Canal. Realizing just how much waste we generate on a daily basis, I've set a personal goal not only to reduce, reuse, and recycle, but to also educate the world about sustainability and how each of us can help preserve our beautiful planet. Thanks for listening. Let's dig in. Did you know the planet's average surface temperatures has risen about 1.62 degrees Fahrenheit or 0.9 degrees Celsius since the late 19th century, a change driven largely by the increased carbon dioxide and other human-made emissions into the atmosphere. Our guest today is a professor in the practice of public affairs, Columbia University director, MS and MPA programs in sustainability. He has been an advisor to many boards and committees over the years and is also the author of a number of books, including The Sustainable City. He also writes a weekly blog for the Earth Institutes of the Planet website. Crazy birds, without any further ado, I would like to welcome Dr. Stephen Cohen. How did your sustainable journey start? I got interested in environmental issues when I was in graduate school, uh, which was, I started in 1975, and I walked into a class called Environmental Policy and Politics. I thought it was pretty interesting, uh, really the most interesting of the courses I was taking my first semester, and the professor and I and the teaching assistant hit it off, and I eventually went to work for him and helped create something called the Environmental Study Center. Also, at that period of time, you know, the EPA in the U.S. was only five years old. Eventually, a friend of mine got into uh, the EPA through Jimmy Carter's administration when he was president, and uh, they called me up to help them figure out how to guide public participation in the water programs. Clean Water Act had just been passed in 1972, and EPA was trying to figure out, uh, as it implemented the different pieces of the act, how do we get uh, communities involved, which was one of the issues I wrote my dissertation on, uh, which was about public participation in water programs. It was also a period of time when uh, there was an environmental disaster at a place called Love Canal, uh, which you may or may not have heard of. It was its first major toxic waste site in America, and people were being poisoned from toxic waste. Children were being born deformed. Adults were getting leukemia. It was uh, a real public disaster. People didn't really understand what was happening, and the government didn't know how to communicate with the public, and the public didn't understand the complexities of toxicology, uh, and it got me very interested and how do you uh, interact with this very complicated world of ecology and technology and human beings? How do we understand each other? And that became pretty much the beginning of what got me into many of the things I'm even doing today. So you've been in the sustainability field for over like 40 years now. How would you say the awareness levels have changed among the people, you know, from like the last few years versus about 40 years ago? First, I'd say that many, many more people understand the issues and we've learned an awful lot in these 40 years. We've had some great teachers who led the way 
in understanding the environment. Everybody from Rachel Carson to uh, Barry Commoner to many, many other people since then. And one thing that was characteristic at the beginning in the 1970s and the 1960s is that in America, it was a very bipartisan issue. Everybody wanted to clean the water and the air and the land. There was nothing like a toxic denier or anything like that. Everybody understood the issues. And I'd say despite all the ideology today, there still is a very broad consensus about the importance of the planet. A few weeks ago uh, on Christmas Eve, they showed this is the 50th anniversary of the Earthrise photo that was taken from outer space, which I remember because I was uh, 15 years old when it happened. The striking image of the planet in the vast vacuum of outer space, and this you saw the moon in the foreground, which was barren and clearly not a very hospitable place. And then you see this sort of blue jewel uh, with the black uh, evening behind it. And you, you started to realize what a precious thing the Earth really is. And I think that hasn't gone away. I think what's made it complicated uh, in the world is uh, there's a very unequal distribution of wealth in the world. And so uh, a lot of people are impoverished. Uh, a lot of people see the comfort that people in the West uh, and in the, the uh, developed world live in, uh, and they want those things. And unfortunately, many of the things that we are used to have been done in a way that is destructive of the planet. Now, I personally believe we can have an exciting, interesting, and comfortable lifestyle without destroying the planet, that it's a question of using the technology and our brains more than we're using it. And I believe that we're going to get there, but these days it's a little bit of a struggle, particularly here in the United States. Yeah, I can imagine, because especially with the EPA, so it plays such a vital role in protecting the environment, and it has been for many years. You were a policy analyst for the EPA. So what would you say is some of the struggles that they face when it comes actually to like protecting existing policies, as well as to try to get new policies implemented as well? Yeah, it's a complicated story because one of the things about the strategy that created EPA in the period of time it was built is it's never been a very large agency. In fact, it's smaller now than it's been in a long time, but it, it actually lost 1,500 people when Barack Obama Obama was president because of the Tea Party in the House of Representatives here. But most of what it does, many of the enforcement operations have been delegated to state governments. So uh, where you have a strong uh, and active state government like New York or California, you have uh, a very vigorous enforcement of the laws. The laws aren't going to be changed. In other words, these very strong environmental laws that we passed in the 1970s uh, and 80s are not going to ever be overturned. What's happening is the way they're interpreted and the vigorousness of the federal enforcement has gone down dramatically under uh, this horrible president and uh, his horrible EPA administrators, both the acting one and the the one who uh, he originally appointed. And these are the worst environmental protection administrators ever. And there have been some bad ones. I worked under uh, Ann Gorsuch and Rita Lavelle, and they weren't very good either. And we chased them out. But what they have now is bad as it gets. Fortunately, they're not the only game in town. Uh, We have a federal federal system in the United States, and so there are uh, many other forces pushing in the other direction. Cities and states, uh, they're very, very active. For example, uh, California is well on the way to decarbonizing its economy, and uh, New York State is getting there too. And so I I think the advantage here is that there are many forces moving in the other direction. I also think there's a a tremendous uh, support for protecting the environment among communities. You know, when we first created uh, 
these environmental laws, we did it because we thought, well, people were going to compete for dirty businesses because they want the jobs. But in fact, what happened instead was the not in my backyard syndrome. Nobody wants those factories. Yeah. And so pe people fight to get them closed down. And so that community level local force is a very potent force for protecting the environment. The environment, in a way, started as a kind of aesthetics issue. You know, it's nice to have a pretty planet. But in the 80s, it became a health issue. And when you add to that people's concern for wellness and physical fitness and dieting and all of the things that, uh, you know, that, you know, you worry about your children in the way that when I was growing up, parenting wasn't a verb. Now, it's, you know, it's a verb. So the, the point is protecting the environment is really the same thing as protecting your family or protecting your children. And I think that that's radically changed how people think about this issue from the 50s and 60s and, until we created EPA in 1970. So even though I don't like what's going on in Washington and it's not helpful, uh, there are many things moving in the other direction. And so you have a lot of reasons to stay optimistic. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, if you just consider how many world leaders actually, you know, doesn't believe in climate change. So you've got some world leaders that think it's an absolute hoax. You have other world leaders that is trying their darn best to just like fight climate change and to actually leave a better planet behind for their children and their great grandchildren. What would you say is some of those issues if you had to break it down for us, like, you know, about climate change? What is it and why should we be concerned? Well, climate change is basically caused, I mean, its primary cause is uh, the modern economy and two elements of it in particular. One is the use of fossil fuels for powering our transportation in our homes. Uh, and the second is actually uh, you know, the methane that is released uh, largely because of you know, the amount of animals that we raise to eat. In the case of the, the methane from animals and, you know, and people's attraction to meat, I mean, those are largely cultural things. I think they're very hard to change, but you could collect. I mean, feedlots are unregulated in most parts of the world, and you could create a way to collect that gas and not let it be released into the uh, atmosphere. Uh, but the major, major cause is really uh, the energy we need for our homes and for our, our transportation, all of which can be powered by renewable energy. Now, the technology of renewable energy is advancing rapidly. It's not yet at the point where it is displacing fossil fuels, but it's pretty close. And, you know, right now we can make an electric car where the battery can hold a charge for 350 miles. And that's roughly the equivalent of a tank of gas. That battery in five years will get a thousand miles of range. At that point, the electric car will be more convenient, it's more reliable, it has fewer moving parts, and as we make more of them, it'll be cheaper. And so it will knock the fossil fuel-based car out of the marketplace as long as the energy that's powering the electricity is renewable. And so there we need more efficient solar cells. We need more advanced wind power. I mean, there are parts of the world, like here in New York, uh, where by the ocean, uh, many parts of the world have plenty of potential for windmills to power their energy needs. Solar cells themselves are very inefficient. And as they get, as the technology advances and as our storage capacity gets better, and I, I would say within 20 years, there'd be no reason for fossil fuel. So the, the climate problem 
interestingly enough, as massive and as difficult as it is, because it involves every aspect of our economy, is one we know how to fix. We actually understand it. Other environmental issues like biodiversity and some of the toxics we've released uh, are much harder to deal with. And, you know, we've also, in our economy, have introduced substances uh, that are very poisonous, but also uh, plastics that are very durable. So, you know, before the 1950s, if, you know, they used to dump garbage in the ocean, but almost everything that was dumped in the ocean was organic and it broke down. Now we have these uh, these substances, you know, whether it's microbeads or, or it's plastic from your beer, you know, that wraps around a fish and, and, you know, and then you have huge mounds of garbage floating through the ocean, uh, marine debris. Those problems are going to be much more difficult, actually, to solve. It's going to take a, a lot of work to do that. Now, climate change, in many respects, is more urgent because we built all of these cities and all this infrastructure assuming a certain climate. So farms are located in certain places because of the water that they get. And so we've created an economic system that really needs the climate to be stable. And so it's really important that we decarbonize our economy as fast as we can. But like I said, that's a problem we know how to do. We know how to deal with that. These other problems we're still studying. There's a lot about ecology uh, that we're still learning that we don't really understand. And so there's a tremendous need for additional scientific research into the nature of the planet and our ecosystems. Exactly. And I mean, especially with the cars, I've recently been doing a lot of road trips here in the UAE where we actually take a few electric vehicles out and we do like two or you know one two or three day trip and we kind of test the vehicles you know how far can we drive you know where do we need more charging stations in order for these vehicles to actually be viable in the UAE and I have to say I was so surprised at how far these vehicles can go and these are anything you know from like the uh, Chevy Bolt to the Teslas to you know basically a whole variety and um, you know just even cost wise you know to think of how much it cost to charge a vehicle full versus putting gas in right. the tank it it's like kind of a no-brainer and people kind of i think at the moment are um looking at you know oh but it's expensive if i have to like replace the battery it's going to cost me this much but there's only that many uh, like moving parts in that vehicle so you don't have to replace all like the oil changes and all of those things which you right. would have to do on a normal vehicle so you know if people actually became more aware of what these vehicles can offer them, they might be more keen. If you also look at some of the new developing countries, you know, that is actually not connecting to a grid anymore. They are rather connecting to solar energy because that means they don't have to get like points connected to them and wait for the municipality to do things. So I think in a way, some of the developing countries might be going ahead and beating some of the like developed countries in that sense, because, you know, you're not going to have to be dependent on connecting to a grid. Yeah, no, we've, we've seen this kind of leapfrogging already with uh, cell phones and smartphones. 
cell phones, many, many communities have no landline, but people already have their cell phones. And so I think that kind of thing is uh, we're going to see more of in some of these technologies. You know, the, there are something like 6 billion cell and smartphones on the planet. There's only 7.5 billion people. So this is a technology that got diffused very quickly uh, throughout the world. And I think we're going to see, I think the automobile, we're going to see some of the same kinds of things. The, you know, the, the horse and buggy uh, got displaced by the internal combustion engine about 100 years ago. Internal combustion engine is stuck around for a long time, and it's pretty clear these other technologies are going to beat them. And it will take a while to displace them totally, but in 10 or 20 years, I think you're going to see more and more uh, electric cars on the road. And in California, they're going to stop allowing uh, internal combustion engines to be sold in 2040. Wow. So, uh, so they're heading toward this already. Wow, that's amazing. You are actually the author of a book called The Sustainable City. Why right. was this important for you to actually publish this book? Well, uh, one of the things that I, I think is very important to understand is that most people think about the environmental movement as being getting close to nature and being out in the natural world. And of course, that's a part of it. But a, a very important thing to understand is if everybody did that, we would be in trouble because there's only so much planet and there's a lot more people than there used to be. So in fact, if we're going to protect the planet, people's daily lives are going to have to be in concentrated communities. And so then the question is, how do you build those communities in ways where people have access to open space and how they have and do they have access to entertainment and education and transportation and all of the things that make life enjoyable and how do we create systems that keep that concentration of people from destroying the surrounding countryside. So, you know, technology of sewage treatment and water filtration and mass transportation built based on renewable energy. In other words, you can imagine a city uh, that had lots and lots of people, lots of exciting lifestyles, but not destroying the planet. So if we're going to get to sustainability, I mean, this is one of the, the issues. A lot of environmentalists talk about denying people things and, you know, you can't do that. You can't have this. You, can, you know, uh, that's not a very attractive way to think about the world. So I wanted to present a, a more positive vision of what sustainability could mean. And one of the chapters in the book is actually on the sharing economy. People, you know, who share motor vehicles or bicycles or, or clothing. One of my graduates uh, works for a company called Rent the Runway. Uh, Rent the Runway started by renting party clothes for women so they didn't have to buy gowns for weddings or, you know, for a fancy occasion. So what Rent the Runway does is a professional woman in New York uh, might sign up for, I think it's $150 a month, and they would get three or four different outfits sent to them at the beginning of each week, and then they return it in the mail, and they get another set of outfits for the next week. And so uh, they don't own any of those these things. We, there was a video uh, I showed in class about it, and this woman shows her closet, which has almost nothing in it. But, you know, this is an, a way that an article of clothing then can be used by 20 people instead of it sitting in a closet where, you know, once it's out of fashion, nobody will wear it again. So part of the idea of the sustainable city is to think about what are the resources that we can share and since we're all together, what are the things we can do collectively that make living together in this kind of space so exciting? And that's part of what I was trying to do was to indicate that cities don't have to be thought of as dirty and polluting places. They, in fact, uh, can be thought in a, of in a very different way, which is not to say that uh, people shouldn't get out and see 
see nature. And in fact, it worries me if people do spend all their time in cities and never get out into the countryside, um, they may not have a value that appreciates what the country offers. So you do have to have some of that as well. But if, on the other hand, if we spread out and all of our settlements were suburban style covering the whole planet, there would be no countryside left. And so that's part of why I think it's very important to build cities that are where pe most people will be living in cities. More, most people, as of 2006, a majority of the planet lived in cities. And by the middle of the century, 75% of the world's population will live in cities. So we need to make sure these cities are not horrible, disgusting places. And that's really what the book was about. So we have actually a sustainable city in Dubai, which is called the I Sustainable know. City. And I, I, show, I show a video of it uh, in, in my sustainability management class. It, it looks quite beautiful. Oh, it is. Actually, my art studio is located in the uh, um, Sustainable City, so I am there most of the time. And so it's obviously the first operational net zero energy city in Dubai. And it's really remarkable to see how one city can operate using renewable energy. And the residents is also super excited because they don't have these very high electricity bills every month compared to other residencies within Dubai. Is there any other sustainable city movement? Is the sustainable city movement growing? And are there other cities like that that we need to look out for? I don't think you're going to see many cities that are built from the ground up the way yours was. Uh, I mean, I think that that's really, it takes the kind of wealth that, uh, you know, that your country has to uh, enable that. And I think it's a great pilot project testing all sorts of concepts. I, I love the, the farming that they're doing indoors and the use of uh, sewage treatment and everything. I mean, I think it's terrific. But what you're going to see instead is the world cities have been evolving pretty much since where they were created. So cities were originally mercantile, commercial places. New York City was a, a trading city. Then, uh, you know, in fact, we built the Erie Canal here so that you could get produce from the Midwest and then ship it to Europe through our port. Then we became a manufacturing city in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, at the end of World War II, 47% uh, of the GDP of New York City was in clothing manufacturing. Last year it was 1%. What happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s is New York became a service city where we have finance and education and hospitals and you know the arts and, and those kinds of things are now centered in New York and we make almost nothing here. So we don't manufacture uh, in New York City. So part of what you're seeing is the city evolves. Now, until 1984, uh, we dumped raw sewage in Manhattan into the Hudson River, and then we wow. built a sewage treatment plant. So you wouldn't want to ride your bicycle along the river as you can today because the river was disgusting. Until 1963, we burned garbage in incinerators in apartments in New York City. And in the, in the summer, in the early morning, there'd be a haze over the city of all of the disgusting pollutants from all the garbage. So we don't do that anymore. We have increased the use of bicycles. We've increased our parks. We've gotten automobiles out of Central Park. In other words, what we're doing is we're gradually retrofitting our cities to be more livable. And the reason for it is that businesses, including manufacturing businesses, have become much more mobile. You can Cities around the world are competing with each other for business and for businesses and for people. And one of the ways you compete is on the quality of the environment. If I get off the airplane and the air is yellow, I'm not moving my family there. 
you know, this is a problem that China's facing right now with its absolutely horrible air pollution. So they're very rapidly trying to clean up their air because, you know, nobody wants to live there. And they have over a billion people, so they really have to clean it up fast. <laughs> so, so what we're going to see is cities are, if you think about a continuum from unsustainable to pristine, like the city that you were describing, we're going to see cities move more toward the sustainable end of the spectrum, in part because the public is going to demand it, and in part because uh, we now know how to do it. The technology is getting better, like the technology of that electric car. Like if you are on a street in the summer here in New York and, you know, the engines are heating up and the you get a heat island effect from all of the air conditioning. If on the street the vehicles were electric vehicles, they wouldn't be generating that heat. And so it would be a more pleasant experience. Also, they're quieter. You wouldn't be listening to them chugging away. So all of those things add to the quality of life and how people can live together uh, in a community. And that's what a, that's really the heart of what I think of as a sustainable city, a city that does as little damage as it can to the surrounding countryside. And one other piece of it that I should mention is what's done with its waste. So one of the things we're doing in New York, for example, right now about half a million people uh, are having their food waste collected, and it goes to an anaerobic digester, which is a kind of uh, compost pile that is mechanical. The anaerobic digester creates methane gas, which can be used for energy, but it also creates fertilizer, which goes back out into the fields, and that helps you grow food again. And so we want to create a circular economy where everything that we use, uh, instead of it being tossed into a hole in the ground, becomes part of the production process. And the way that that can be done, will, will it will take place in cities where the waste of our you know, everyday life uh, is recycled and used as a product in some other form. You know, when we look at compost, for me, it's a very interesting thing because people tend to be very disgusted with compost. They're like, oh, you compost, you know, that's not cool. But these people are more than happy to use plastic water bottles and then be very excited when they actually recycle it. And then I'm like, well, that's just being downgraded. It's not really, there's, there's not really something to be proud of. You know, it's good to recycle versus just ending up in a landfill. But when you actually compost, some gardeners are like, oh, that's like black gold, you know, for their gardens. So it's so much better to do something like that versus being proud of recycling your plastic that's just going to be degraded. Yeah, no, I, think, I think that's right. Stephen, what is one of your most important decisions that you've made around Mama Earth? Well, I don't know that I think about decisions, but I, I suppose the professional choices I've made when I came to the university, one of the things that was very important to me was to build education programs where people who weren't scientists could be taught enough environmental science so they could manage the work of protecting the environment. And so starting in 1987, we created a course here called Environmental Science for Policymakers. Uh, then I created a uh, public administration program in environmental science and policy, which requires students to take a summer of environmental science before they take their management and policy courses. In 2010, I created a master's of sustainability management to try to apply these principles to uh, the business world. So, I mean, I, I think that my decision to become a, an educator and to take what I learned back uh, watching Love Canal and, and when I worked at EPA the second time, I was responsible for citizen government interaction at toxic waste sites 
try to get people to really understand what was happening to the planet. And, and I really think, uh, I have to say, in 40 years, uh, the average person knows a lot more. And young people are incredibly knowledgeable about uh, environmental issues and insistent that the places that they work and the places that they live uh, operate according to sustainability principles. Um, and that's a tremendous force in our society right now, and it's worldwide. And, and, and I think uh, we, we are going to save the planet, and I think we're going to save it because uh, we've learned and people have learned. And I, and I think uh, the way I always put it is everybody likes to breathe. You know, we've kind of gotten used to it. From my perspective, deciding to devote a, a substantial part of my professional life to building those kinds of things, probably uh, what I consider the most important things I've done. And we're going to move into our final five questions. And the first one is, what is one social media account or publication that you follow? Uh, lately, I've been looking at Twitter because uh, the staff at the Earth Institute opened up a Twitter account for me. So I write a blog every week uh, and it's put on the Earth Institute State of the Planet blog. It used to be on the Huffington Post. And so they send that out. And now I, I tend to read. I follow a few people uh, that I find interesting and I'm, I like seeing what they're reading. And that's what I like about Twitter. And what is your hope for Mama Earth going forward? Well, my hope is that people learn to uh, really treasure the resource that we have. I think they have, they already do much more than they used to. And I hope that that just continues. And what advice can you give our crazy birds this week to help out Mama Earth? I guess what I'd say is don't pay that much attention to the people who uh, deny climate change. Uh, they know in their heart that it's really happened. And what is one sustainability fact that you like to use in a room with people not yet on a sustainable journey? Well, I like to remind them of the fact that, uh, especially if they have children and grandchildren, that uh, they may enjoy the fruits of the planet as we have it today. They really have to ask themselves, you know, if, 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 if I, I'm a new grandfather, I have a year and a half old granddaughter. And, you know, when when I look at projections about 2070, you know, I, I won't be here, but she will, God willing, she will. And I want to make sure that the planet she inherits uh, is inhabitable. And where can people find you? <laughs> well, I'm at Columbia University, and it's not hard to find. I'm in New York City, which is also not hard to find. Uh, I'm reachable. I will give you now my email address, which is sc, for Steve Cohen, sc32 at columbia.edu. And I answer emails and uh, happy to talk to people about these things. Awesome, cool. And I linked up all your other social media and your blog and everything. I'll link that up in the show notes for our crazy birds to actually find you as well. Thank you so much. Hopefully we can see you pretty soon in Dubai and we can give you a tour of our sustainable city. Well, it's wonderful. Well, I hope everybody and that's a wrap thank you so much for listening you can find the show notes for this episode at mamaearthtalk.com follow at design by mariska on instagram or email hello at mamaearthtalk.com and let me know if there's a topic you'd like me to talk about i love hearing from all you crazy birds New episodes are uploaded every Monday with a bonus Top Tip Thursday every Thursday. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything. Mama Earth has a voice and it's us crazy birds.